Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here at Pegaworld in Las Vegas, and I have the distinct pleasure of being seated across from Kirk Bourne. Uh, Kirk is a principal data scientist at Booz Allen Hamilton. Kirk, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Fantastic. Thank you, Sam. It's so great to be here with you in Vegas, <laughs> or I should say Hot Vegas. Hot Vegas. A, Not Hot Lana, Hot Vegas. <laughs> exactly. Great time to talk about AI, machine learning, and other cool things in a hot environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why don't we jump right in and have you tell us a little bit about your background? Wow. So uh, I've been around the block a few times. <laughs> uh, so my background is astrophysics. I fell in love with uh, understand, uh, trying to understand the universe years ago, uh, which meant I fell in love with data years ago, because <laughs> data tells us about things, how things work. And the universe is my system <laughs> that I studied for decades. I worked at NASA for nearly 20 years on data systems to help other astronomers access data, as well as myself accessing data to study our universe. And during that period, I fell in love with uh, concepts like machine learning, data mining, and things that we call data science nowadays, and even AI. That is, how can we do greater discovery from data? And so during those years, uh, I eventually decided that uh, I wanted to move out of the NASA world into education and to teach the next generation students, next generation workforce about data science and data. So I left NASA, that was 15 years ago, and spent 12 years at George Mason University in Virginia teaching data science to students. And that's what I love doing, teaching, educating, informing people about this. And then this company, Booz Allen Hamilton, called me up a few years ago and said, hey, how would you like to do that for our clients and for a bigger world than just the science world? And uh, I said, yes. <laughs> so I've been doing this principal data scientist thing for Booz Allen Hamilton for three years now. Awesome. Awesome. And you're also quite prolific on Twitter and speaking at conferences and kind of the whole uh, the whole gamut. I don't know that there's a point to that other than I'm one of your Twitter admirers and uh, we, we go back and forth quite a bit on there. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, well, one thing I don't do, I admire that, you, that you're doing, is the podcast series. <laughs> uh, my son-in-law gave me a bunch of equipment <laughs> a few months ago for my birthday and said, hey, here's your chance. <laughs> nice. I uh, haven't quite put it to use yet, but uh, no, it, it's, I really love sharing knowledge about this field. I mean, it's exciting what's happening. Uh, I don't, and I think it, we are part of a sharing economy in the world in general, but I think in the data science community especially, uh, data scientists love to share their knowledge. If you look at all the hackathons that take place, people love to use their knowledge for social good. If you see all the data for good uh, hackathons and competitions and activities that people pr participate in. And so it's just part of our community to share knowledge, to share what we know, to, to help things. And uh, if we can earn a living doing it also, that's fantastic. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, that is one of the great things about the community, both from a research perspective, as well as the commercial side of it, the willingness to publish, for example, you don't see that in a lot of other areas. Yeah, I think the, the open source uh, community, which includes Python and R, uh, is sort of like ingrained in, in, in this community. And as such, people are willing to share lots of things. You know, mm -hmm. not, not just their code, but you know, knowledge that they've learned and ideas that they've had. 
And I, I mean, I grew up in an era where very, people were very protective, you know, and peer reviewed research was in published journals that you had to pay subscriptions to receive and you got, otherwise you wouldn't have access to the knowledge. And, and, uh, you know, I think the world has changed a lot that, uh, we believe more in sort of open science, open data, open knowledge, uh, because it's really the benefit to society that this stuff brings that should take precedence over me getting some kind of special accolades or attention because I came up with a thought. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned if I'm old enough to know that if I came up with a thought, someone else probably has also. So, so I don't, I don't think it's uh, it, it's worth arguing over who came up with the idea first. The fact is, we we have great ideas in this community. We love to share them with each other and, and to, to benefit our clients and ourselves and our society from it. Hmm. And so, what is your day job at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton? Are you primarily uh, evangelizing and educating, or are you doing are you involved in projects as well? Uh, it's mostly the former, but some of the latter. So, so uh, primarily, um, what they call the horizontally matrixed guy. Okay. okay so, uh, I like to tell people we have a thousand data scientists, the world's best kept secret in data science, because our data scientists are working primarily on client data, on client projects, on client site, and we're not at pr- allowed to talk about it. Right. And so, people pretty much don't know what we're doing. Uh, so all these uh, different projects are in different vertical markets, and, like, and mostly in the federal government space, but things like healthcare or, or military or intelligence or transportation or energy or treasury or homeland security, you name it, we've got something going on. And there's chief data scientists who basically manage, not so much manage, but uh, they basically oversee the, the, the talent acquisition and the work acquisition in those markets. So we have many chief data scientists, but the firm has one principal data scientist, and that's me. So, so one of the ways they were able to extract me out of the university made me an offer I couldn't refuse and, and actually created a job title just for me. <laughs> Uh, so my day job doesn't include interacting with some of these projects and occasionally, you know, doing you know, some advising and, and mentoring of people who are working on those projects. But more often than not, it's uh, the evangelization thought leadership is a f- phrase they like to throw around. It <laughs> means lots of writing and public speaking, uh, even executive advising. So so I, I say I, I mentor the newest members on the block and doing this stuff and the more senior executives who maybe have heard of this but don't know quite what it is. And so I have this uh, desire to, to share knowledge, okay, and uh, I sort of fulfilled that desire by becoming, being a university professor for 12 years, mm-hmm. and uh, I haven't surrendered, you know, that passion of teaching and mentoring and training uh, by going to Booz Allen. I'm just doing it in more interesting and diverse environments uh, much more interesting use cases than maybe the galaxies I used to work on, even though I used to love those galaxies. <laughs> There's probably a handful of people in the world who cared about those galaxies. But now when I tweet something on Twitter, you know, there's uh, 200,000 people who <laughs> who are reading it. So that's interesting, that impact it, it now has. Right, right. So we've been here at uh, Pegaworld for the past couple of days, and a lot of the conversation has been around automation, automation in service of uh, digital transformation, in service of customer experiences, and increasingly uh, adding elements of intelligence to that uh, that process of automation. You know, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, I just love this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the 
more trivial reasons why I love this is it gets it gives me the opportunity to use one of my most favorite words in a sentence, and that word is confluence. <laughs> uh, so if you understand what confluence means and the confluence of rivers, and if you ever visit such things, that's really interesting. But that's another story. But we're living in an age of the confluence of many technologies, many technologies converging, merging, working together. Uh, to to a greater outcome, in the same way that you know many rivers, like, tributaries can merge together and create a, a, a mighty force. And so we have automation, we have AI, and when you think about customer experience, uh, things like that. I, for me, it's like everyone has a customer. I get a little bit of you know friction with some of my uh, astrophysics colleagues from days of. <laughs> Long ago, long ago, saying, Kirk, what are you doing now? <laughs> what is this stuff you're doing now? And I said, well, you know, it's all, that's not really all that different. Because back then, we, you know, the people who we needed to impress in order to get grant money might have been the, the proposal reviewers or the agencies who fund our research or the paper reviewers to get the, our papers published in journals. Okay. And, and so we're selling our ideas. We're selling our thoughts. We're selling our work in some sense. Okay. Maybe not in the, strict sense of selling, uh, but, we're, but we're making a good case for what we've done is of value to someone. And so, uh, so customers need to have those value propositions, you know, from companies, and they just don't want to hear the words. They want to sort of, when I say the sort of the three questions have to be answered for that customer, the what, so what, and now what? You know, what is it you did for me? Why should I care? And what does that mean for me now? And so being able to answer those questions uh, improves both customer relationship and customer experience, customer journey, whatever you want to call it. And every, like I said, everyone has a customer, right? So whether you're in a government sector and you have stakeholders or publicly traded company, you have shareholders. If you're actually customer facing, obviously you have customers. Uh, whatever it is, you're, 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 someone is, will buy your product, will buy your ideas, will listen to you, will pay attention to you, even if all you're selling are your words and your thoughts and your ideas to someone. Uh, you have to be able to say it in ways that are empathetic, that is, puts, puts the words in ways that they can understand it, that they see the value for them. Uh, and so it's, it's putting yourself in their shoes and, and allowing them to sort of see it from their perspective. And as a data scientist, uh, I, I love this uh, way of describing what I do. I, I, one of the ways I describe my job to people is I talk the walk. All right. So there's a lot of companies out there that can talk the talk, right? There's AI, lots of hype, data science, machine learning, blockchain. I mean, you name it. There's hype cycles all <laughs> over the place. People love to talk the talk, right? And and uh, there's a famous quote from years ago when big data was at the peak of its hype cycle. Uh, a person said that, you know, big data is like teenage sex. Everyone is talking about it. No one really knows how to do it, but everyone thinks everyone else is doing it. Uh, so you claim you're doing it even though you don't know what you're doing. Okay, so uh, I think a lot of hype cycles are like that. People do a lot of talking the talk. And so what we want to, so we talk about moving beyond that to being able to walk the talk, being able to actually do the thing you're talking about. And a lot of companies are now reaching that pace. So when we see data analytics, I think we're past the hype cycle. AI is sort of peaking out. And I think we see tons of implementations, amazing processes being automated and all kinds of things being implemented. AI showing up all across enterprises everywhere. And so people are really, you know, walking the talk. 
And so I say I see my role now as to being able to now to describe that to someone. You know, I don't want to sit there and describe something in very mathematical language and all about deep learning and neural networks and words that people have no idea what I'm talking about. I have to be able to explain it in a way that's empathetic, that is they can see why, you know, the what, the so what, and the now what in this thing that we're doing. And so I, I take that as my personal role at Booz Allen Hamilton and in my life in general to be able to ex- explain to people in, in those terms, what is this stuff we're doing? And I, and I think this is a very interesting time to do that because of this confluence of so many technologies. And to be able to explain what we're doing to people, we, we have to be able to explain what machine learning is, what AI is, what big data is, what data you know, what data privacy has to do with it. Uh, and we're not trying to steal people's identity. We're not trying to destroy the world with robots. I mean, so you got to have all kinds of different kinds of conversations with people, but you got to put yourself in their shoes at the same time, not being untrue to yourself and untrue to the technology. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a fine line. And uh, I, I sort of enjoy walking that tightrope. <laughs> what do you mean by untrue to the technology? That, that, that is slipping into talking the talk. All right. It's really easy when you talk to people about the AI machine learning and stuff like this and say, oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to cure cancer. It's going to change the world. It's going to reduce poverty. It's going to remove gender inequalities. It's going to, you know, fix our environment. And all of a sudden you're just sort of like mouthing all these platitudes. And it's not being true to the technology because some of this stuff is just plain hard. And some of the AIs we see in businesses are pretty small and minor. And that's okay. That's really okay. Like if you use a, t- a cell phone, right? Use a smartphone and you're using text messaging. There's an autocomplete, right? A spell check, <laughs> an autocorrect on your cell phone, right? As you're typing the word, it sort of completes the word for you, all right? So that's a type ahead feature. It sees what you're typing and it sort of guesses what the word is going to be, even the next word. That's an AI, all right? That I don't think any autocomplete or autocorrect has ever come out of your phone and taken over the world. <laughs> <laughs> So we so we can be true to the technology. Say this this is an AI. You, what you have in your hand is an AI, but it's not the kind of AI you see in the movies. Right. <laughs> All right. So so I, I can so I don't want to say that AI is this this pure force that's going to cure all of the world's illnesses and problems and we'll live happily ever after i mean it's i mean that's not being true to the technology it's hard work and a lot of that hard work it deal it has to deal with the ethical questions and all the bias questions and and data privacy questions there's lots of really hard problems to solve there and it's not being true to the technology or to yourself to ignore those i imagine that you have had encounters with executives at, at Booz Allen where, you know, you hear, well, why can't we just? And it's, you know, some, you know, then a miracle occurs type of statement or, you know, something that is more like, you know, maybe something out of the movies or something, you know. Uh, how, how do you deal with that beyond just saying it's hard? Well, to tell you the truth, it's usually the other way around. Really? <laughs> uh, at least in my experience, I find, uh, you know, a lot of the, of course, we're a management consulting firm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we go to clients and and we're, you know, we're pitching our consulting services, whether it's analytics or digital or cybersecurity or something. And so we're selling to a customer, right? Uh, and this customer could be a federal a director of some agency or something like this. And so they're a very critical person, right? They, they, they're not going to spend their money any, any more than when you would go buy a product, you're going to spend your money just because some salesperson says so, right? You, you're you're going to be critical. So I, so I see a lot of good critical thinking and critical question asking from that side of the table. 
but what, but occasionally what happens is on the data science side of the table, which is where I sat, and I and I've I, I see myself as a younger person doing this years ago when I was really getting excited about this automation and AI and machine learning stuff when I first just sort of discovered it, if you will, twenty years ago. I was I was the, I was that sort of you know, pie in the sky guy on the other side of the table say, talking to my NASA client said, oh, we're going to be able to do all this space exploration. We're going to autonomously drive spacecraft around Mars and find all kinds of interesting discoveries and new, you know, new water deposits and new titanium deposits. And we can build colonies on Mars and we're going to have an Amazon type service, automatic supply chain of delivery of the supplies that astronauts need just in time uh, from a supply ship or in orbit that's delivering <laughs> packages to their door by satellite deployment and so i was going on and on with all this pie in the sky stuff so i was i was the guy who was sort of needed to be pulled back you know mm -hmm. and of course i learned a bit <laughs> in my old age to rein in some of that sort of unrealism in the stories and and i think it works better because again the, the person who's who's buying if you will uh the client uh who you're trying to sell a product or a service to you know, they're not going to buy that baloney, and uh, it's, it's snake oil, right? And so I remember a friend of mine years ago, an astronomer, he wrote a book called, when the internet first started, I mean, not the internet per se, but the web first started, he wrote this book about the uh, the internet being silicon snake oil, right? And he and he, 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 he predicted the demise of the internet. He said, this will only last a couple of years. It's just a fad. This is stupid. It's just snake oil, and it's smoke in the mirrors. Well, and... Uh, <laughs> And yeah, completely wrong, right? <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I sort of forgot about that. But a few years ago, I, re I sort of remembered that he wrote this book, right? And so I went back to Wikipedia uh, where, and looked up his page there. And, and he actually has a pretty deep and long apology <laughs> about how stupid and, and arrogant and, and naive he was. Even though he was a PhD astrophysicist, he was unlike... A lot of PhD folks who don't normally admit when they're wrong, he was uh, very uh, humble about the fact that he really screwed up in that prediction. It's a, it's a tough line uh, to walk, seeing you know as we do the promise of technologies like AI uh, and others, but knowing the limitations, or at least as you put it, the hard work that has to go to get there, and knowing. Um, you know, being able to kind of project, you know, how long it's going to take to get to some vision state X. You know, it's really hard. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about like self-driving cars, there's an example where so many things have to work together, an autonomous vehicle, in order for it to not only do what it does, but do it safely. And not only safely one time, but safely all the time in very different environments. And, and uh, so step one, I mean, just Get a car to steer straight, okay? Right. Get a car to recognize a stop sign. Get get a car to turn a corner. Get a car to recognize the speed limit. I mean, just I mean, just one little step at a time, and it, and, it, and there's like so many steps, uh, and, and so I think a lot of uh, implementations and enterprises using AI, machine learning, automation, whatever you want to call that stuff, uh, intelligent automation, uh, again requires a lot of moving parts to get right. And so we, we need to be more humble, so to speak, in in our way of uh, uh, believing our own story, believing our own uh, promises that how far can we get in X amount of time. And I, and I'm, I'm a, I frequently say to people, and I still believe this, that, that one should think big but start small. <laughs> that is, don't think small and start small because that's not very useful <laughs> uh, but think big you know but uh, another way of saying it is think strategically uh, but act tactically mm -hmm. 
And uh, my father was Air Force, so I learned some of that language when I was younger. You know, that st strategy is about winning the war, and tactics have to do about theater or are battle specific. So sometimes you have to lose the battle to win the war. Sometimes you have to give up the hill in order to w win the battle. Okay, so so you don't. It's not always about win, 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 win. Right? It's about the long term uh, goal, and and that long term goal. Uh, is what keeps your sort of your north star keeps your focus going. So you, you you need to have that, but recognize that there's a lot of steps on the way. Those sort of tactical steps, and tactical failure is. Uh, people say failure is not an option. I say strategic failure is not an option, but tactical failure is how you learn. So so uh, sometimes that's called fast fail. I, I get a lot of sort of knee jerk negative reactions from my clients when I talk about. Fast fail. They said we don't we don't want to fail here, <laughs> so now I call it just fast learn. Okay, so we want to have a fast learn environment, and the implication is how do you learn? But you learn from mistakes, you learn from failures, you learn from uh, edge cases that didn't work out, and so you know we, you want to be in a fast learn environment so that you you can do these smaller incremental steps. And um, I learned a new expression this week. We used to call those the sort of little incremental steps minimal viable products, right? The, the MVP, minimal viable product. Now you're going to talk about the MLP? Yeah. So this week. That was awesome. <laughs> so this week uh, I learned about the minimal lovable product. Right. And I said, I like that minimal lovable product. And one of the keynotes here at the world. <laughs> so I uh, think, and that's, uh, that's going to be my new, my new thing, you know, MLPs. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say NLP for people who are listening out there. That's natural language processing. I right. said MLP, minimal lovable product. Right. And remember, I mean, data like products are like your children. You love all of them. Because <laughs> <laughs> even when something goes wrong, you, you learn from that. And that's what this is all about. It's about learning. Uh, you mentioned just a moment ago self-driving cars, and I've heard you use a, a really interesting analogy uh, between applying the idea of self-driving cars to the enterprise to explain intelligent automation, the theme of this this event. What does the self-driving enterprise mean to you? To me, it means basically doing what the self-driving car does. It, it, it senses its environment. It sort of sees what's coming, takes an action that's going to optimize uh, the outcome, uh, and it uses all the contextual data. So I, what I just described is descriptive analytics, predictive analytics, prescriptive analytics, and cognitive analytics. Okay, so a self-driving car, okay, it's, it's collecting data. What's going on now? So it's diagnosing its environment from sensors in the car. So a, a, an enterprise, no matter what it is, whether your, your customer engagement, your sales, your marketing campaign, your employee activities, your human resources, anything in your business in your across your enterprise, whether it's an, an, an enterprise-specific or a customer-facing thing, you're collecting data. Okay, so the, so just like a car, you're collecting data. Well, you got to do more than just collect data and from your sensors. You got to do something, all right. And so you you want to take some action. Uh, so part of your action is to sort of look ahead and see, well, where is the road going? So I mean, let me let me make sure I stay on the road as I move forward. Okay, so that's the predictive model. Sort of you see what's ahead, so you can move forward in that direction. So, so if you're trying to increase sales, improve customer uh, interaction or whatever, you sort of see what kind of steps you can take that will move you in that direction. That's I mean, that pre predictive model. But, but more so, it's prescriptive. That is, you can say, what can I do to optimize the outcome? So just like a car driving says, I, I, if I go down this street, you know, my app tells me less traffic, even though there's more 
stoplights. Normally, I wouldn't go that way because it's a longer drive on a normal low traffic day, but on a high traffic day, it's going to be faster to go this other way. So, so in the same way with customer engagement, you might you might have a more optimal outcome if you take a particular path or a particular uh, road, so to speak. But it's but it's again, it's it's even more than that, and that's the cognitive ad- analytics the cognitive phase of driving, which is now you take in all contextual data. So using the car analogy again, you look at all the data. That is, What's the weather condition? What's the road condition? Are there pedestrians on the road? Are there children playing down the street? You know, am, am I in a school zone? Is it whatever? I mean, so you, you, all this contextual information now informs you how to take next best action. So cognitive analytics is about next best action, or, or I like to say next best question. What is the thing I should be asking of my data? What kind of things should I be informed about from my data? And so that's the cognitive phase of the self-driving enterprise is not just doing the thing that you always do, collecting data, selling products, serving customers. What is the thing you ought to be doing? What, what is the, the more uh, contextually-based thing you should be doing? That context could be time of day, right? So let's just say you're building something as simple as a recommender engine to a customer. Uh, what you recommend a particular customer is not always the same, even for the same customer. It could depend upon time of day or day of week, for example. I might be looking at completely different products online if I'm at home on a weekend than if I'm at work or if I'm on vacation at Ve- in Vegas <laughs> <laughs> or if I'm at work. And so context, location, time, uh, those kind of contextual data points uh, sort of change your action even for the exact same customer. And so b- being able to bring in contextual data makes you more cognitively aware and able to take those best, next best actions and ask the next best questions. And so that enables your enterprise, your business to be that, that self-driving enterprise in the sense you can start automating more of the processes, automating more of the activities, uh, not taking human out of the loop, but but augmenting the human with the right information and knowledge and inputs and insights that they need to do their work. So I like to say AI is no longer about artificial intelligence. In fact, there's nothing artificial at all about it in my mind. It's about other types of AI, amplified intelligence, assisted intelligence, accelerated, augmented, adaptable. And I just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> go on and on and on. I mean, there's all these interesting ways of, of thinking about AI besides artificial. And so your self-driving enterprise is, is, is that one that, uh, is, in a sense, it's, it's doing for your enterprise what an autonomous car is doing for a driver. You don't want to have the driver completely disengaged from the driving experience, I think. I think we've learned that from recent <laughs> incidents that, that you still need to have a person there. Uh, and so you still need to have a person there in the enterprise. Obviously, I'm not. Uh, so future of work is another completely different dialogue we could be having in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did mention a phrase earlier called digital transformation, which is one of the big themes here at Pegaworld this week. And digital transformation includes two words, right? Digital, <laughs> which ha- which means we're looking at digital information, digital data, digital signals. Uh, to inform us and and to do our self-driving car thing, self-driving enterprise thing. But there's the other word there, transformation. And transformation means change. And change means change. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) So jobs will change. Career paths will change. What people do will change in the same way with every industrial revolution. And so it is happening. I mean, you you can't stop it from happening. I mean, it's 
I mean, it would be, it would be kind of ridiculous to stop it from happening any any more than you know, stopping the invention, you know, of the printing press or something like that. Oh my gosh, you know, what are we going to do with all those uh, those monks and monasteries whose job it is to transcribe to, uh, to, or to, copy to, to, to write you know copies, <laughs> endless copies, beautifully <laughs> art artistic copies. You know, of the Bible or whatever. Okay. So they, they, they found some other things to do, obviously. So, so work changes. You know, the, the tasks we do change and that, and that it means transformation. So, so it's okay that we are going through a change now because change is good. And, uh, and it's, it's growing pains. We might, you might say we're going through the adolescence phase of, of digital transformation. So there's a lot of growing pain right there. <laughs> Earlier, you, 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 mentioned you were discussing tactics versus strategy tactical uh you know the hill versus the battle the battle versus the war a lot of what we talk about in um kind of applied ai uh, automated decision making is you know very tactical decisions um you know what's the next offer what's the the next step are you seeing ai machine learning applied to helping businesses get a handle on the the strategy the bigger picture that's a good question um i'm not sure where we are in in that stage i see a lot of a lot more discussion of on topics that you might label data strategy or analytic strategy and i imagine also ai strategy uh so i think that the, the idea would be um let's stop and think what are our business goals what are our outcomes we're trying to achieve so so be outcomes driven and not technology driven i mean i i sort of cringe when i see people say that their business is data driven and i've used that phrase myself so (laughs) i've all pointed at myself to be guilty there they say they're data driven or technology driven and i and i and I'm, i'm starting to catch myself before i say that we're data empowered we're data fueled data informed and we're technology power, empowered. Okay. Maybe that's a better way to say it. we're data informed and technology powered, but we need to be product or outcome or driven, customer driven, customer driven. Right. Well, outcome driven because a customer success might be your desired outcome, hmm. you know, customer. And, and you might say customer sales might be an outcome. And that, I mean, that's a, that, that's a metric, right? So when you think about outcomes, you need to think about the metrics to measure whether you've achieved your outcomes, right? So that's that's traditional KPI, that's traditional Six Sigma, right? You say what you're going to do, you do it, and then you prove it, right? That's that's how I learned Six Sigma. And so how do you prove it? Well, you have to have some kind of measurement uh, that you've agreed to, that this is the thing we're going to capture and measure to demonstrate whether or not we've achieved the outcome. And so the outcome is customer sale is a is a is a metric, I would say, customer success, customer loyalty might be outcomes. That that you're that's the big goal, right? And so you sell a product to a customer. That's a tactic, right? So I make a recommendation. The person bought the product. Yay, hooray for us! But is that a loyal customer? Are they going to come back and buy more from us? And so sometimes, like I said, you got, you got to sort of lose the battle to win the war. So this is why companies offer things like discount coupons and and uh, freemium type products where they give you something for free hopefully later you'll buy the more premium plan uh, when you have the sort of the low the the zero cost plan which has a a fewer bells and whistles fewer services than the full premium plan Uh, but if you really like what you you see there you're willing to pay more and so the company is willing to take that loss 
in order to win the bigger the bigger war. That is, they're going to gain a, a loyal customer in the end. So, so yes. So if you looked at the bottom line, you'd say, well, we lost money today because we gave away all this stuff at twenty percent off, and, and you know we have a fifteen percent margin in our company, so we're losing money today. But in the long run, you've gained lifetime customers, loyal customers, and that uh, that's really the the bigger picture, the bigger the bigger goal. And so strategy and tactics. I mean, some people interchange those words. I'm, I'm not here to argue semantics, but I'm really arguing about think about sort of long term goals versus short term. Um, metrics and accomplishments, and sometimes that the negative step backward leads to a bigger step forward later, so, and that and that's okay. That brings to mind for me, and in fact, this came up in an interview earlier today. The notion of architecting the you know our optimization functions, our reward functions, to as you put it here, better reflect the outcomes as opposed to the individual transactions. What kind of progress are you seeing towards data scientists being able to capture a, a more holistic view of the, the business strategy and the business outcome and the way that they optimize and the way that they build you know, machine learning algorithms and AI systems to optimize uh, towards those? Um, and, and where do you, what's your sense for where we are in the maturity curve and how we get to, you know, the next best thing? <laughs> well, I think we're in a much better place than just a few years ago. And, in what sense? And, and I mean that uh, primarily in, in the access to more data. Hmm. All right. Uh, but there's really sort of three sort of, again, using the word confluence in a sentence, there's sort of three things that have technologies that are merging large amounts of data that is sensor technologies are collecting data on just about every process person thing and and enterprises and homes and cars and the universe (laughs) there's also faster better more powerful algorithms so lots of development and algorithms for detecting patterns and trends and behaviors and data and then the third one is just uh, access to high performance computing so yes, we've had HPC high performance computing for many years, but you have to buy a supercomputer to to have access to a supercomputer. Now you can rent one on the cloud, right? So you basically can rent as many CPUs as you need from a cloud service provider for the two minutes or five minutes that you need it, and then give it back. So all you've paid for is those couple of minutes, and it's the cloud services provider's job to buy the hardware, to maintain the hardware, to to upgrade the hardware, and all these things, uh, which most in, in, in past days, I remember working at institutions where they didn't want to make that expense because they knew that within five years it would be obsolete and what a huge capital investment that would be. And wouldn't it be better if we invested our money in XYZ other direction, like hiring more staff or more, you know, funding more students or doing whatever? Yeah, we all agree ultimately, no, don't go, don't go buy the big supercomputer because it'll be money down the drain five years from now. And so, so we got powerful computing, we got powerful algorithms, we got lots of data. So what does that buy us? It buys us insights and, and the ability to derive insights from data. And so when you're talking about optimizing a function, if, if a function is multidimensional, which in this case I would say it is, there are many, many factors that determine the optimal something, right? optimal customer experience, optimal sales, Optimal whatever. I mean, no matter what it is, optimal performance in a manufacturing plant, optimal supply chain. Think about the traveling salesman problem. I mean, there's like N factorial, which is a very large number uh, <laughs> for a traveling salesman who's going to end different stops, right? And so this is a, this is a challenge problem that's, uh, that's uh, quantum machine learning is addressing. How can you do a, a, a faster 
a much faster solution to the traveling salesman problem, which is basically optimal routing, whether it's for, you know, any kind of routing, whether it's, you know, shipping industry, uh, logistics in the military or whatever. Okay. And, uh, network traffic, always looking for optimal routing. Okay. So all, so how do you solve an infactorial problem? One that, one that basically is grows so fast, you don't have, there's not enough computing power on the planet and the universe to solve the problem. And that is you have more data. So the data that from all these sensors gives us essentially a map, you know, of our, if you will, an n-dimensional map of the, uh, the, fun, the, the output variable, but and I'll just pick a number. Let's just say revenue. Okay, let's just say that's our, if revenue is our thing we're trying to maximize. There's all kinds of factors. So we can look at all these different conditions and factors and, and uh, activities and, and see which ones lead to the maximum of that function. And so you no longer have to do complex modeling per se you 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 can but but the data becomes the model because you now have enough data that the data now tells you this is how the system responds and, and in the case of say marketing campaigns right i heard a story once years ago that ebay had they did uh like a b testing on their website you know like changing the fonts and changing the colors and changing the locations of things on the page they did 10 million a b tests every single day Every single day, they they move things around and change things, change colors, change fonts, change locations, change the sizes of the pictures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, at that point, you don't need any kind of model of customer behavior. You just look at the data, say this is what works. Let's go. <laughs> and so I think uh, the the ability to just use all the different data sources we now have, and, and again, if we're going back to the customer story we got sales data we got customer uh, call center data from that customer we have return data you know we have all kinds of data customer care data uh, uh customer interest data you know product history purchase data we have all kinds of information about that customer so we can now f- figure out how to optimize our interaction with that customer based upon the data as opposed to what we would do in the past with some kind of modeling, right? So, okay, I'm a white male over 50 and my, live in a certain zip code. Therefore, every white male who lives in my zip code over the 50 must like the same things. And every morning I walk out my front door of my house, I know that isn't true because the guy next door to me has a Pittsburgh Steeler banner hanging out front of his house, and I'm a Baltimore Raven fan, okay? <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm immediately informed that, no, it is not true that every single person in my demographic likes the same thing. I mean, and, and of course, we know that now, right? So I say the big data era represents the end of demographics. We're no longer like using these limited biased variables to d- determine outcomes or, or marketing campaigns or offers or whatever. We just look at the data and say, what does this individual prefer, like, desire, and uh, serve them for who they are and what they like and desire? And uh, again, that sort of optimal optimization of customer experience, which leads to optimization, hopefully, of revenues, <laughs> uh, is driven by data. And uh, at the end of the day, that's why I say it's all about data. Therefore, digital transformation is happening. It's not it's not the gut instinct anymore that drives your decisions as a business. It's it's the data. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a great note to close on. Uh, any parting thoughts uh, before we? push the button. (laughs) No, I think this is great. I thank you so much, Sam. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Same here. Thanks, Kurt. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Kirk or any of the topics covered in this episode, 
head on over to twimmelaicom slash talk slash 151. To follow along with the Pegaworld series, visit twimmelaicom slash Pegaworld 2018. For more information on Pega Systems or their new Pega Infinity offering, visit pega.com slash infinity. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.